0: How's everybody doing? Yeah, good. Seriously, this is great when the referee wasn't <laughs> Maybe Everybody would go to do yoga. Or something. Uh, what's the exercise? What's happening now? Mind right. body bridging. Yeah. Oh. This is going to be mind wallet bridging. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so hi everybody. My name is Jonathan Fite. I run a company called Beyond Boost Technologies, and I wanted to preface with a couple things, um, apropos of some conversations a little bit that are happening today. Um, I won't really tell you too much about myself other than I've been working uh, in the mobile medical space, so fire, EMS, community paramedicine, mobile integrated health for uh, over 14 years. Uh, so I speak red and white really well. I'm still learning to speak blue. Um, so if I use words that don't necessarily apply to the policing sector as much, uh, either stop me and correct me, please, because I definitely would like that. Uh, or let's discuss sort of how the, the point applies across that line. I think it's really important. Um, not only here, but in some of the case examples that I'm going to highlight where uh, FD, PD, family services, etc. have come together. Uh, and they're learning to speak each other's language. This is a, a pretty real topic uh, right now. So I think that's really important. Um, so please don't hesitate to stop me or correct if something doesn't apply. We can talk about it. Um, the second is that I come in with a couple biases. Uh, and again, some of these came up today. Uh, some of the discussion, particularly when we start talking about money, when we start talking about different groups working together, there's a lot of politics in there. Um, my bias is that numbers are neutral. And so ultimately it comes down to zeros and ones. Uh, if you're looking at technology and software and so on, if you're looking at finance, there are numbers on the page. What you choose to do with those is a different conversation entirely. So we were talking, <laughs> Alex and I today, right, the three of us, about storytelling, right? And and I think ultimately when it comes to getting people to support your work, right? A lot of it's really about the story. I'm not going to tell you but the stories that I'm here to tell you. Uh, but I hope that when we come away from today, it will be we're gonna re- recognizing that my, my goal is not necessarily to advance any other point other than the data are extremely helpful. Because how do you tell the story if you don't know what you're telling the story about? Right. And so, to the degree that anecdotes, I think, Kim, you were mentioning about anecdotes earlier. Right? Anecdotes are great and very emotional, and they're why we do what we do, but they don't necessarily get people to open up their wallets. Um, sometimes they do. Sarah McLachlan's really good at that, <laughs> 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 uh, but, but realistically speaking, we're in an age of accountability, uh, and so to the degree that people want to know as taxes go up, because inflation is real, but don't tell anyone in California. We have no idea. Uh, so, to the degree that we have, to, we have to be sure that when we're asking people for support, and those people may be a variety of different folks, um, that the, the, the resurrection of the data, the ability to say, here's what we're telling the story on, is my mission. And that way you can go into your own communities and, and tell the story as it needs to be told for, for the objectives of your program. So that's what we're going, we're going to get into today. Um, any initial items you want to make sure that I touch on? Any, Questions, concerns, before I get started, or should I just jump in? <laughs> okay. I, I do want, to the degree that I can, make this dialogical, um, but uh, there is a lot to cover and do try to keep me on task. <laughs> okay, so the initial title of the, of my talk was The Economics of Co-Response, Designing a Sustainable Approach. Um, I figure we should, we should try to, we work that a little bit. We're gonna talk about money here. So let's be right down to it. We'll get to the economic heart of the matter. Let's talk about making money by working together. Right. That's really what these programs are all about. Uh, so to the degree that and I, my, my organization is unique in our space, we are the only technology company in mobile medicine founded by two non-clinician MBAs. I do not wear a patch. I serve folks with patches. I ride along with them. I absorb their stories and, their, and, and what their experience is. Uh, do not ask me to shove a tube down somebody's throat. It probably won't go very well. <laughs> um, so, but I, but I will start by saying that uh, I believe that the work that you guys do is sacred, um, and it's my job to get you paid. That's what I do. So to the degree that folks who are going out and serving others aren't necessarily great about demanding, quite frankly, what they deserve for that. So my goal is to help you make that case, and as I mentioned here, we're gonna start by talking about valuable objectives, and that's actually a really loaded word. So that's what we're going <laughs> to talk about today. It's not going to be a theoretical conversation. Um, as I mentioned, my goal is to get you paid. Uh, so to the degree that I can have you come away from today with some tools, some words, uh, some calculations, uh, or understanding where to go find that information. That is my tangible objective. If you get richer off of my conversation today, I will have done my job. Uh, if you go away finding that I am most, you know, just the most boring talk of the day, I'll just be typical for myself. <laughs> um, but... Uh, like I said, I think this work is really, I think it's really, uh, it's not only really exciting, it's very tangible, but it also is the front end of a future. And, and I think I get the privilege because I work across the United States of seeing what other places are doing and what they're not doing. And I can tell you because most of the time, the folks who are, it's funny, some of the folks we were in the car with last night heard me say exactly what I'm about to say right now, which is the folks who are hardest on themselves are generally the ones who are doing it the best. There's a lot of places that think they know this very well and their programs have died. And there's a lot of places that are trying to get the economics right, get the data right, get the community support, get the politics right. Those are the ones who never think the job is done, because it's not, and it's continued to go. But they're cognizant of the fact that they have more work to do, and they tend to do really, really well. Uh, so with that, uh, a disclosure here that uh, I work with some of the programs that I'm going to highlight today um, in a number of ways. That's why I know what they're doing. Um, I have the privilege of working with them on the data side, whether it's helping them analyze it, helping it collect it, et cetera. But I am not a clinician. They are doing the work. So the work that I'm going to show you is the work that they are doing and coming together, and I get to support them. Uh, With that said, here's the the first thought for the next few moments. So so what makes a co-responder program successful? We're going to talk about presumably either getting paid for your success or getting paid to become successful, right? But in order to do that, we have to understand what it means to be successful, right? Is that you saved a bunch of people that you kept them out of the hospital, that you kept them from going to jail, that you kept them off the sauce, that you kept them alive? Those are all different. So, so have we asked the question: What are the what are the metrics that we're measuring against? And by the same token, what makes a program sustainable? Okay, so, to the degree that you want to be able to do more of the work that you're doing, uh, I am. I know of programs uh, in a variety of places. For example, that. Uh, are doing, their programs are so successful that they are actually working them for their neighbors. They're essentially licensing out their capabilities to others who don't necessarily have the manpower or the, uh, in fact, in some cases, they're rural communities. There's literally no bodies there, part of the year, and they're you know, seasonal communities where folks are so come in and, and take over the task. So what does it mean to be sustainable? <laughs> so I see this is why I need to move my own slides. <laughs> um, so like I said, I, I, my, my job is to get you paid. And so ultimately I translate the sustainability to your ability to keep doing this job. Uh, Most police departments, most fire departments, many EMS agencies are nonprofit, are government oriented, Profit is not necessarily their orientation, but that doesn't mean that they can't bring in more revenue to do their programs internally for more patients, right? More practitioners, Mm -hmm. larger space, right? We might not be talking about profit but that doesn't mean we can't talk about revenue in excess of cost. <laughs> and, and that is a very different way of looking at, essentially, a amount calculation. So I, I've gone up in front of rooms and said, well, why aren't your prof- programs profitable? And I say, because we work for government. So but that doesn't mean you have to be operating in the negative. <laughs> Even governments can turn a surplus. So to the degree that if, you're, if, people, if you can measure the work that you are doing and you can demonstrate the value that you are achieving, there are people out there whose job it is to give you money You don't need to go necessarily find them. My goal, and I will even say this to government entities, is that you should construct your co-responder program, your MIH program, whatever we want to call it, terrorist program here, that we should construct that with the assumption that you will not get one dollar of government money. Not one dollar of grant money. Make the program stand on its own two feet, and people will fall over themselves to give you the government dollars it will fall over you to give you the foundation dollars. They have to spend them. And so, to the degree that the dollars exist, I, I live in the, in the San Francisco area. Man, there is so much money chasing stupid down there. It'll make your head spin. It's more than you even hear about. So um, the point is the dollars are there. The question is, why you versus somebody else? And on that topic, the topic of the discussion of the word payer comes up a lot. I want to disavow any one of this. So show of hands if you use the word payer in a conversation. Right? <laughs> you, you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> Scott's heard much of this before. I, I bang this table as frequently as I can. So anyone want anyone to throw out what a payer is? An insurer. Okay, anyone know? Tax What was that? Tax Okay, anyone know? <laughs> you have patients who are self-insured, <laughs> right? So I would argue that a payer is somebody who pays. That's a pretty vague concept, right? So I, for example, oftentimes when we hear people talk about payers as insurers, okay, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but there's an assumption there that an insurer is going to be in the mix. What if it turns out that the insurer doesn't have any direct benefit from a program like this? There are a lot of communities where, for example, a hospital that is getting a lot of readmissions, against, sorry, I'm showing my red and white side here, <laughs> but but where a hospital receiving a lot of patients, there has been a vast misconception across the EMS and fire community that hospitals don't want readmissions. If I can blow your mind, it will be on this point. That entire calculation is based on a mathematical error. So the idea that patients coming back into a hospital don't get paid, that the hospital doesn't get paid to see that patient again, that has been the assumption. That is incorrect. Uh, The hospital receives a lower payment. They get a discount. If I had to ask any of you in the room, if would you prefer 97 cents instead of a dollar or zero instead of a dollar, which would you prefer? Bring on the 97 cents, right? So the readmission model doesn't work. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But that becomes extremely important if your pitch is oriented towards why your hospital district should pay you to keep patients at home and allow them to stay at home. I'm not talking about hospital at home model. Scott will come back to that later. (laughs) The different motivation there. Uh, it's not about keeping the patients at home through they're not readmitting. It's about keeping the patients at home because you can care for other patients or do other things in that space, <laughs> a different economic argument. But to the degree that we, have, we use the words like payer, it's important to understand who we're talking about, <laughs> right? And, and there are communities, in fact, so one of the programs I'm privileged to work on uh, for the state of Oregon is the country's first registr- uh, registry of pediatric special health needs. So imagine if you were to roll up on a patient, a child, and know what their underlying condition is before you get there without having to re, you know, interview the patient and their family and so on. So I just had a conversation with a parent of special health needs kids on uh, Friday. And this woman, who has one child with cystic fibrosis uh, and the other with type 1 diabetes, who actually said, I would be more than happy to pay to put my information into something so I don't have to talk to the team every time they show up and tell them the same thing I told them a couple days ago, right, the last time we had a problem. So isn't it amazing that all of a sudden the payer is now the patient right? or the patient's family or their church or whoever the community organization is, right? The idea of following the money <laughs> is, changes the dynamic of what the pitch is going to be right? because obviously you should be selling to your audience. So if we're orienting toward an insurance model, that's a very specific type of data. It's a very specific type of economic structure. There's a language that gets used, and we're going to talk about that. But the answer to how you get paid stems from this question. And this isn't me being mean. This is an actual question. Follow the money. Who cares and why? So if you are going to engage in a program that keeps people well, one of the most difficult things that I find for good people, and I would consider all of you to be good people because there are damn well many easier ways to make a buck, and what everybody in this room does, right? But isn't it an interesting question to think, who loses if you succeed? Just let that gestate for a second, right? Because you think that everything that you're doing is good. You're here to do good work. Would it blow your mind to think that a co-responder program, genuine, bonafide, teams working together to keep patients well and out of the hospital, in Arizona worked so effectively that the hospital shut it down? Sound wild? But 97 cents on the dollar went to zero. Somebody lost because the work was good. It's not to say that there's not another incentive for those. Like, in fact, that's a perfect example of Scott where I would say you should talk. Right? If you've got extra space now, maybe that space can be repurposed. Maybe there's other patients who are not coming in that could come in. Maybe we have a holistic conversation around how you've got an underserved community that needs to be seen. We'll talk about that, too. And then you've got a a community that you are keeping out because they don't need to be here. So instead of saying, you lose if I win, and for me to win, I'm going to help you lose, which is very uncomfortable, we say, who else? How can we reconstruct that? And this is where I think the the co-responder concept here is so wonderful. How can we recast that conversation and say, what if we all win? <laughs> That's what we're going to get into today. <laughs> so again, my argument here is, how do you know that somebody cares? <laughs> That's my bias. Somebody cares because they're willing to fork over something. Not necessarily money. Remember the Geico guy? He follows me everywhere. <laughs> I can't get rid of him. <laughs> um, but this is really important. Now, I don't mean to skip over it. So if you think you're doing good work and you want someone to... Support your work, what are you doing to prove it? Because we know you've got the stories, that's not an issue. I was just in the substance use talk a few minutes ago, I think some of you were in there. Uh, There's no shortage of anecdotes, and we're going to talk about some of those today. But the question is, how can you translate those anecdotes into something that someone can say, if I do this, I get a return? Either I pay less, or I make money, or I get to repurpose something and make money from them, not from you, all of those economic questions that are really distasteful to the good people, but really natural to me. <laughs> so, I don't know if any of you is a fan. I realize this might not have been the right movie for this audience, but I like this. It's a training day. I'm assuming people have seen it. <laughs> not what you know, it's what you can prove. And so, that brings us to an important question, which is what is value? Anyone want to take a stab at that? I have to start calling on people. What does <coughs> value mean to you? Something of worth. Okay. Thank you. What else? From the lens from the fire department, a reduction in call volume okay. is valuable. Okay. So something of worth, specific item, specific thing of, of value that you can tie to something casual. What else? Anything else? It's an interesting double entendre. <laughs> so according to the Oxford English Dictionary It means two things. One is something of value, something of worth. The other is the things that we care about, our values. <laughs> right? So the, the word's an important one because, again, I'm assuming that you all are good people. I'm assuming you're here because you're trying to do something altruistic for your community. Wouldn't it be fascinating <laughs> if we could put the two together and we could say, what if we're finding ways to measure and, and turn into tangible returns the things that also allow us to do that which we care about? like keep people healthy, keep the community safe, reduce fire, reduce crime, reduce recidivism, reduce opioid addiction, reducing all these different things. So my definition of value hinges on the idea that if we can combine that which is tangible, that which I can get somebody to invest dollars in, or invest time, or invest uh, in-kind services, invest facility location, et cetera, physical, tangible, real estate, et cetera, and in the process also fulfill your values, the things that your community cares about because that's where communities invest, right? In communities, invest in what they find to be important. <laughs> there are lots of different acronyms. It drives me crazy how much acronym soup is in this whole ecosystem, right? But some people call it community needs assessment, community risk assessment, community, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I just think it's really trying to understand what you need, right? It doesn't really necessarily matter. And in fact, I think the TLAs, the three-letter acronyms, tend to actually do us harm right? because they create tribalism. We were talking about that last night at dinner. Right? What's the difference between a CARES program, a community paramedicine program, a community integrated health program, a mobile integrated health program, a community integrated health paramedic program? They're just politics. Right? Am I wrong? Right? So, so, again, I'm trying to go deeper than that. In your communities, you're going to have to engage that. That's a reality. Right? unless and until someone decides to throw open the gauntlet which the state of ohio basically did it's not an impossible thing to do they basically said just don't kill anybody um it was really an intersection really interesting story because right prior to that state meeting where they made that decision those types of integrated programs were disallowed statutorily and policy from a policy perspective in the state of ohio and there was such a groundswell and this i think is a worth worthwhile aside it was such a groundswell from clinicians in the, in the field. to say, we want to be able to engage our community the way we need to engage our communities. We don't want to be restricted in our ability to do that. So the state and the associations turned around, and they said, fine, knock yourself out. Just don't kill anybody. Want to guess how many people took them up on the offer? Like six. <laughs> Turns out this is hard. <laughs> There's a lot of work that goes into understanding what those needs are. Why I find fascinating about the data conversation of it is a lot of that information is already known. (laughs) And we'll get to that. So, but I mentioned before about the accountability bit. (laughs) So, so speaking of data and taking it to accountability, I would argue, and and strenuously in certain contexts, that all all or most of the information that you need in order to be able to do this work and get paid for it, you already have. (laughs) The work that I'm being privileged to do with some folks in this area is focused on that. Let's understand what you already have. There may be some holes you need to fill. There may be some ways you need to tweak the questions. But ultimately, if you are able to go on and engage with your community, the hard work's already done. Now it's about storytelling and how to either spin the data that you already have or figure out where in the plot holes need to be honed. Right. And and so basically, if we're not quite getting to our objective, but we know we're doing good work, we're seeing good work. Right. The results are visible, but they're not necessarily in evidence. (laughs) The way that our economy and our politics are driving things is really toward either polarity. I don't think anybody can disagree with that. Pick a tribe. And that's, you know, the the policy you're going to follow, whether you like it or not, uh, or where the numbers take us. Right? And that accountability is really interesting because it can kind of cut across those those political lines in many cases as long as the numbers are based in reality right if if you're if you're clearly fudging things or leaving things out, but if you're basically saying here 's what we're dealing with, and I mean I live near San Francisco, so if somebody were to try to say we don 't have a drug problem, they 're missing the boat right? I' would be happy to walk them through the subway stations <laughs> right? so the question is what do you do about that that's a different story right and and wise people can disagree around what the solution is, but you can't put the evidence of an increase in substance use related deaths in San Francisco in front of somebody's eyes and have them say, that's not real, right? The fact that we had 10% 10 rise in on the road deaths in the United States between 21 and 22 is real. We can't argue that. What solution? Totally. Wise people can disagree, but you can't disagree credibly until you have the ability to dig and say, what are we actually working with? And so to the idea that you're asking people to invest in a solution or a set of solutions, we need to be able to talk to them about what it is that we think is actually going to solve it with some sense of what we're working with. But that gets challenging. Because again, translating what you are proposing to do and what you're seeing today and how you're going to take the solution that you're proposing and translate it into metrics is a bit distasteful for people who want to go out there and do good work. But it becomes a really fascinating exercise if we start thinking about the ability to follow the money in terms of impact achieved. But we have to go past the first order. It's not necessarily, again, thinking about the hospital example. Right? If I do this good work, they have an issue. In order to be able to solve that problem, we have to be thinking in their shoes, too. Let's bring that back to the co-responder model, right? To the degree that the more at the table, the merrier. All of a sudden, we can start to say, I understand the other person's perspective. It's not Pollyannish. it's not hokey, it's economic necessity. Because if I go up and you go down, you are going to resist me, right? Scott and I had this conversation around some of the political moves in California just recently, right, between EMS, fire, Uh, community paramedicine, nursing, home health, social work. Is it possible that those are actually not as unrelated as they think? Maybe they should actually be helping each other. But instead of looking at the data and saying, how can I benefit if you win? How can I win when you win? Here's an example. Uh, Again, with apologies, I work mostly with fire and EMS. I'm gonna use those language, but I think this applies to police as well. Um, If you're going to, if you get a call (laughs) to a patient's home, who has mental and behavioral issues, and they're a hoarder, they have a history of violence, uh, and they are, you know, their home is overrun and infested and so on and so forth. Do you get a choice to like, not go? <laughs> Does that happen? Because I've never seen that happen. <laughs> right? You go. You, you, you tighten those boots up. You, maybe you put on a jacket, you know, other gear, but you go. If you're a home health nurse whose primary job is to do things like check for bed sores, make sure medications are adherent, all these really important things, make sure the person doesn't have fall risks in their home, do you want to be in an environment where you could get stabbed or have a stack of newspapers fall on you or get bitten by a rat? That's probably not your gig, right? All of a sudden, the idea that it's either fire, EMS, police, community, paramedicine, or home health, nursing, social work, et cetera, becomes nonsensical, because wouldn't it be funny if the home health nurse, nursing agency, for example, could subcontract to a fire department, an EMS agency, or a policing agency, and say, do us a favor, go into these calls. These are the questions we need to ask. These are what we need to check. Make sure it's safe for us before we go in. Does that sound crazy? It turns out there's an economic reality to that. How many of you are familiar with actuarial risk? Yes, a couple? Great, right? So, insurance risk. Turns out, if you subcontracted that, say you're doing it at $1,000 a call, is it possible that you reduce more than $1,000 worth of actuarial risk off the books and all of a sudden the premiums paid by that home health agency go down? <laughs> because their people are going into an exposed environment and having a real risk of long-term injury or death. We can do that, right? It requires looking beyond the tribes. Let's say, I can do something that helps you. In the meantime, I get paid, that helps me, you have a lower reduction in you have a reduction in cost, which effectively gets you paid, and everybody wins. But it requires people coming out of their shells and talking to each other, and that's still something that we're working on. So again, going now to the question of evidence. If, you, if it's not completely obvious, I grew up in Los Angeles. I lived through the movies. I'm sorry, just a thing. Um, so I think it's important if we're going to talk about truth and we're going to talk about evidence. We're gonna talk about how programs can be successful and not be successful. That we also ask some questions about what you can't do. <laughs> and then understand why not. It's not to say that certain things couldn't be figured out. <laughs> But there are also certain mathematical realities that become really challenging to overcome. And if we go in with incorrect premises, we're going to send ourselves down a cul-de-sac of despair, which I'm pretty sure is a literary reference that I can't figure out where I got it from, but it's from somewhere. If anyone knows, please tell me. It's been driving me crazy because I love that phrase and I don't know who attribute it to. (laughs) So as I mentioned, there is uh, around the, the fire and EMS community, the mobile medical community, there has been this drive for years and I'm talking about since around 2015 to focus on readmission avoidance. Right? That stemmed from something very specific that somebody got wrong, but it stemmed from the shared savings model under the, from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services back in like 2015, 2014, 2015. Uh, the idea, uh, show of hands if you've heard of the AAA, better health, lower cost, better access, right? So again, I mentioned the economic, the financial mistake that was made, but the problem is, it turns out that if your goal is to reduce cost, increase access, and get people better, it is virtually, if not entirely, mathematically impossible to achieve that objective. Any curiosity as to why? I will venture a guess. Why can you not achieve those three things at the same time? Once they get better, they stuff. the data. Okay, fair guess. <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> <This guy. laughs> turns out, I like where you're going with that. But turns out, getting people into care is pretty expensive. You guys free? Hospitals aren't free. The ambulances run on coffee and smiles. I mean, <laughs> so I met a couple people try to make that argument. That's an interesting one. I don't even go too far. <laughs> it turns out that getting people into care is expensive. Period. Full stop. <laughs> right. So, I think Kim, you may have heard me say this at one of my previous presentations. But anyone care to venture a guess as to what the most cost-effective patient is? Slightly a trick question, but not wrong. Someone healthy. No. Good point, but no. Someone negligent. You're getting closer. <laughs> Keep going. Smoking. Yeah. Yeah. Who said it? I did. There it is. <laughs> So, most cost-effective patients, a dead one. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. You're the first person who's literally ever gotten that right. <laughs> she uh, just walked in two minutes ago. I love it. Also, the point that all of the intro to now was totally irrelevant. Good for you guys. <laughs> I can help. I can go <laughs> So, which is better? A patient who costs $24.21 or a patient who costs $13.58 per year to take care of? Anyone? That's so on what side of the table you're on. Mm-hmm. You find what you mean by better. Love it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Both of those. Anything else? Okay. I th- I think kind of where you were. Bo- I love where you were going with that because that's going to be what I showed in a second. I think we were talking about is whose perspective, right? You're asking. <laughs> Great. So let's dig into that. <laughs> so to the degree that there is a fuzzy term, we're going to come back to this and sort of try to unpack it a little bit in a minute called social determinants of health. I don't like that phrase. I don't think it means anything. I tend to not enjoy words that don't mean anything. <laughs> so to the, to the degree that you have four words there, right, no one can actually define what those are. And in fact, the evidence for that, which is the HL7 gravity project that I'll come to in a few minutes, is evidence of that, and I'll point to you why I get there. But one of them that comes up a lot is alcoholism, right, or the consumption of alcohol. That is considered to be, particularly in excess, a social determinant of health for a variety of reasons. So some data, to support the question and the conversation from a minute ago, is that the cost for a non-drinker with a heavy drinking history is $2,421 <laughs> per year. That is somebody who is no longer a heavy drinker. Now, if you let that person drink themselves to death, their number goes to zero pretty quickly. Although there is certainly some cost, I guess, in moving them for wherever they died. <laughs> and I don't mean to be gory about it, but these are real questions, right? if you're gonna talk about the economics. Do, is it cost effective to intervene in somebody who, for somebody who is drinking themselves to death? From a financial perspective, maybe not. From a social good perspective, absolutely. So so we don't want people, no one in this room wants people to be in that situation. We just can't make the argument that we're going to lower costs by doing that. We have to be able to go, yes please. I'm, I'm curious how cause a lot of what you're saying, and I'm trying not to speak an acronym, for your No, good. But from Washington State tries to move away from more of a fee for service model of paying for supports, yep. a value based model. Yep. I like, you can get into how that's defined and if that's accurate. But how does this play into that? Because a lot of this is dependent on how you, as a provider or as a service person, are yep. getting paid for yep. services. It yep. depends on which is better. It's one reason why value based programs are having such trouble is that the different practitioners associated with them have what a lot of people like to call perverse incentives. Um, the problem is perverse incentive goes right back to what you said, which is it depends on who views it as perverse. Some people see this as great. It's exactly what I'm getting paid to do. I'm getting paid to pay, take care of sick people. If you make everybody healthy, I'm out of a job. Right? I mean, that's where, again, if all towns were healthy, it's, I'm the white cloud, so when I show up, every town is healthy, and nothing cool ever happens when I get on the truck. So if any of you guys are having trouble in your community, bring me along on a ride-along. You'll have the greatest day ever. <laughs> but it's actually an interesting problem. So I did that. I'm going to answer your question in a more second. But I did that. In North Kansas City, Kansas, Kansas City's region is not known for not having hot ambulance use. They have some stuff going on in Kansas. And literally, nothing cool happens when I show up. It's the wildest thing ever. I spent more than four and a half hours in a firehouse that didn't get a single call. They loved it. They had time for dinner. They were playing with drones. It was wild. <laughs> and, and then the chief came in and literally said, can you go? Because like we need to work. Um, and not for nothing, I walk out of the station. The lights turned on. And it was wild. So... Um, who's incentivized right if if you are if your economics are oriented toward taking care of people and those people are well you don't take care of them because they don't need you which might mean that i can replace you or i can shut down an emergency department or i can brown out a fire district you know a fire station right so the the question of who is determining that value and how to align those incentives is what that whole ecosystem has been working on for years. <laughs> what they're starting to do now, besides using the insurance risk model, which cuts through a lot of that, um, is the, well, the reason why it cuts through all that is because it requires all of those economic inputs. So you can answer the question of, am I achieving increased value by pulling together all of the numbers? You just can't do it on your own, right? because you'll only see one facet of the diamond. But if you say, well, what's your cost, and your cost, and your cost, and your cost, and how can we maximize those? And that's where I'm going to go with this in some of these case studies, because when they work, they work like gangbusters. But you really have to understand the economic drivers of each of those parties. That doesn't tend to fit in 140 word characters, or 140 character. You know what I'm saying? It's not Twitter-ready. It's not bumper sticker-ready. And I think that's where the politics come in and sort of disjoint this. Because so much of it becomes tribal, what fits on a cart, right? What fits on a picket, what fits on, you know, in a 30 second thing in front of your legislators. These are really complicated. Uh, But we can get there. And I think one of the things that I, why I try to give this type of conversation is to understand that if you're looking too short sighted, you're ultimately going to potentially cause a further harm down the road, right? And um, we'll talk about food in a second. But uh, food is an interesting one. There's a food as medicine movement. I think pro- some of you probably know. We're in, we're in that kind of political environment in Washington. So some people probably know food as medicine up here. Um, you know, the idea that if you educate people on the idea that um, not eating certain types of foods is better for you in the long run, it might seem more expensive, not necessarily, but can seem more expensive to eat healthier. But you're going to make up for that uh, cost savings with medical savings. Right? New York is a pretty tragic place for this type of argument because there are areas like Harlem better now. But for a long time, they were basically food deserts in the middle of Manhattan. Right? And you could not find fresh food, and you could not find anything that basically wasn't fried and probably pretty bad for you to begin with, and then they made it worse. Um, but there were a lot of people who didn't have access to better food than that. So the argument that people often gave was that the long-term view, the actuarial view of, I'm going to eat better now, but I'm, going to not spend the money, oh, I'm going to spend the money later in terms of taking care of my health didn't hold water because people weren't living that long. <laughs> right? So this idea that I'm not going to survive to recoup that savings is a tragic economic reality, but it's an economic reality nonetheless. So if you look at it that way, who actually wins If you teach people not to eat the bad food now, those same companies, because they have a longer lifespan in which you can ultimately have it. It's actually a very Republican, right-wing concept, right? Lower the rate, wide the base. right? So if I am stretching out your lifespan, I may not be having you consume as much right now, but I'm going to keep you as a customer for longer. all of a sudden you can align those incentives to say i want to empower, you know as a fast food company as whoever i want to keep you healthy because i get to keep you and now you've changed what was prior, prior a tribal polarized conversation into one where everybody's saying we want to get you we want to give you healthier options and the evidence for that is literally coming out of places like mcdonald's uh, that they are saying, we're going to give you other alternatives. We're going to put the calorie counts on so that you can be educated about that. And in the process, we're going to keep you around and we're going to ultimately make more money for you. And at some point, we're going to raise our prices and you're going to keep paying them and their stock price goes up and everybody wins. Right? But the idea is that if the, if the individual who's coming in, their customer is healthier too, that's a win for them. It's a win for the healthcare system and it's a win for the company. Uh, and it's not imaginary. <laughs> Uh, so this was just a little bit more what we were talking about. Uh, and again, here the, a little bit about the alignment of the incentives. So again, if your goal is to avoid getting, letting people get sick, then that, that's different than keeping the cost down. right? And, and I think we need to align those, but we can align those. Um, this one I find very, very emotional. I gave this one an adjective because it belongs there. Um, this is one of the most powerful programs that you guys can implement. Uh, you can do it with essentially no cost. Uh, other than your time, uh, and it gets you an ROI of 300%. <coughs> Please take that home with you. 300% documented ROI on retur- on getting people friends. Um, literally, find five minutes to talk to grandma about why her grandkids don't call don't call anymore, and she will not be as unhealthy. Because how many times are they calling for a friend? Well, if it turns out you're on the way back from a call and you can stop by in someone's house and see them, you're literally spending nothing except a few extra minutes. You're on the way back anyway. <laughs> so this, to me, is one of those examples. And if you needed more evidence, there are whole companies being created to literally do just that. And we'll get in talk about where you find people to do that, because not a whole lot of public health and public safety agencies um, are lacking and you know, have extra staff just sitting around not doing anything. <laughs> But it turns out there may be people in your community who can benefit from the experience of helping you as well. Uh, New York City, for example, has an entire force called the police auxiliary. Their job is to go around and kind of be eyes on the community, right? Um, Wouldn't it be neat if you could have, for example, kids in the community who are, you know, they have to do community service hours for high school. And so they can work as part of the team. They get something neat on their resume. They're doing something good. You guys are getting a, a, a win achieved. And again, it's a, it's a collaborative uh, address of the problem. Food insecurity, I think, was, is kind of a funny one because it's so obvious. Uh, if someone's calling you because they don't have food so they're hungry and you get them food they're not hungry anymore, that one, that one just kind of wins. Um, California does everything right, in case you guys know are wondering. Don't ever question our mechanisms or our politics. Everything's perfect, <laughs> so you know. Um, but there's a, a really interesting example from Alameda County that I like to tell about this because there was a woman in the, this was in 2014, so we were 2015, excuse me, so we talk about how long these types of programs have been going on. In 2015, uh, she was calling pretty much twice to three times a week. Um, this was a woman who was uh, homebound, visually impaired, and calling for hunger pangs and other things that you'd expect you'd get and fatigue and whatnot with uh, food insecurity. So, when their program was the first version of what is now called the CARE Team uh, in Alameda was stood up, uh, the, the team went to her home and did an interview with her and did a conversation, everything we talked you know, from the earlier session about motivational interviewing and understanding her history, understanding her family and so on, it turns out she's eligible for food stamps. But now it's even more confusing. Why the heck is she calling for food insecurity when she qualifies for Meals on Wheels, and et cetera, et cetera? Well, it turns out because we do everything right in California, Don't, you know, so in California to qualify for food stamps, you have to have an, an ID. Well, she was homebound and visually impaired. So she couldn't drive. She couldn't get her IDs, so She couldn't get her food stamps. So the fire team literally drove her to the DMV, sat with her, got her her license, she got her food stamps, and within the next 12 months, she called for possible. And that was for a bona fide like she hurt her foot on something and it was a, she actually needed help. <laughs> um, so less you need more than the anecdote, because again, anecdote being what it is, it's not enough for this kind of conversation. Hopefully that one. And I wanted to point out that the article I just pulled, this is actually what I was pulling, some of you guys saw me working on stuff here earlier. Um, This article is nine years old. This is not new. This has been known for a long time. So I always find this to be a very puzzling part of this dialogue, where are we missing something? (laughs) Because the the reality that if you get hungry people food, they don't call for help anymore, has been known for a minute. Why aren't we doing this? Why are there not programs focused specifically on that? It's not to say that they need to be only focused on that. It's a different conversation. But if one of the things in the mix that will support all of these efforts is a direct return on investment, because it's really expensive to take care of someone with hypoglycemia who needs food. And again, going back to the conversation to your point around value, If you don't have this person come into the hospital, the hospital loses, right? Kind of. Depends on, A, whether that person's gonna pay for their care anyway, which may or may not, so they may get bupkis out of it, right? Or it may turn out that part of their calculation, especially in busy environments, hospital home, (coughs) you're welcome, um, is what if that bed space could be used for somebody with a higher revenue point? Right, so now you get to an expected value calculation and say for the amount of time that this person in this slot will generate $1,200, so now I have to send a heart transplant to another facility because my bed's taken up. Well, that heart transplant would have cost me, would have generated $100,000. Might be smaller odds of bringing them in, but at $1,200, you've got a roughly 1.2% chance. So at 1.2% chance, is there more than 1.2% chance that you're gonna have a higher revenue patient than 1,200 in your community? Almost 100% of the time especially in a busy service, so to the degree that we can say there's a real economic incentive for not having this person come in, even though it's $1,200 out of your pocket, you're losing. As a facility, you're actually worse off because this person's coming in. Now you've taken the enemy of your model and turned them into a, uh, an ally of the model. The other bit that I want to make sure we don't forget to talk about at least touch on is the shared savings concept. Um, you guys are familiar with the shared savings model? So CMS, a number of years ago, uh, created the shared savings model. Uh, Basically what it says is if you keep this person from readmitting into a hospital, it's actually not specifically it, but if you keep them healthier, if you lower their cost of care on a straight-line three-year average, so you're essentially looking at the total amortized cost of care of everybody that touched them, all of the pieces of the healthcare system as dictated by a Medicare-Medicaid type calculation, and you look at their three-year number and then you reduce it. The delta gets shared among the different parties, and there's a formula for how you do it. The problem is you have to have those numbers. That's a data conversation, right? And so the shared savings model has been a disaster, not because the model doesn't work, it's a fantastic idea, right? I take the number, I lower it, I say you guys all split this, have a nice day, we all buy pizza. That's a great idea, but you have to have a data conversation, you have to be willing to have that conversation together and because of the tribal political bits associated with this, that conversation is not happening. And that's what people are solving in communities like this one. Go ahead. Um, go back to the hospital calculations for a minute. This one? My, my point is that the money saver for the hospital is getting people out quickly and keeping those beds filled on time. Like, is it much more expensive to keep people, or as we say in Washington, board them? Is that, the work? Is that what we should be focusing on for cost safe? It depends. Um, so. When I talk about hospital costs, I'm sort of using the ED and the inpatient environment as a blended average. Um, But it depends, and it depends on where you're putting your resources. Uh, If you have, based on your payer mix, for example, you may have more people coming in who need those ED spaces. Uh, or excuse me, the inpatient spaces because they need ICU care because they need other specialized care as opposed to the ED. Uh, in other cases where you have a lot of violence in a community, for example, you may need more spaces in the ED. They may never make it to the inpatient. Uh, you may have opinions <coughs> on that particular matter. So, hospital in Washington, we active here. A lot of the focus is getting patients off of the floor. The hospitals have a of payment called the DRG. So whether the patient's there for one day or thirty days, the hospital oh. payment is the same. In mm-hmm. the that's emergency the department, it's okay. state service. So every additional service they do in the ED increases the revenue for the hospital. Okay. Say the say the expression before about the bundle length of cycle. DRG. Give me what it stands for. Diagnosis. I don't I don't, I don't work in that part. I mean that, that's <laughs> really important information. I mean, that's where the hospital sees the real value, is to get paid for 30 days and discourage somebody at two. That's powerful. uh, A diagnostic-related group. It's a CMS-measured payment for based off of the diagnosis, or what's being treated. And it's based off of, are they there for addiction services with the addiction? Are they there for heart failure? So whatever that diagnosis determines that payment. I imagine that's different also based on the type of hospital, Precisely. so you're a critical access hospital and you're not worried about having your doors be closed because uh-huh. you can't versus a for-profit uh-huh. hospital or a community-owned hospital. Uh-huh. Really- and what those diagnostic groups are. So the diagnostic groups change. <laughs> so certain, certain groups are more valuable than others. Mm-hmm. So again, it, it, which let me speed through this. I'm not going to focus too much on these ones, the, t- the tobacco-related ones. You can kind of get the point. I'm happy to send you guys the slides. It's more of what I was just showing you, that the numbers are not necessarily what they seem. It's very Freakonomics. <laughs> okay. Um, but it, it does go, and I think this, this is worth pausing on, that the program design matters intensely. <laughs> right? So when you're Because to your point, what type of facility? What type of use cases? What's your payer mix? Uh, again, are you, if you build a model that is built based on the idea that folks are going to come in and out, And they're going to then get healthier right well if you have to provide a lot of proactive care if you're going to use a hospital at home model for example you're going to physically physical physical equipment that has to get moved and bought and put there right so to the degree that if your promise is that you are going to make them healthy give them access to care and lower their costs simultaneously and do it in a 30-day window you're likely to fail and that was where the problem of hitching with that readmission bit is problematic and if you open the aperture and you start to say, and if I can look at the total cost of care that you're incurring and look at, for example, on a 365-day, which is what I skipped over, is on, by the second year, the cost of, uh, of, of care mediate back to the demographic group with <laughs> the individual who's under care. All of a sudden, the work that I did on a 365-day basis, uh, basis got you back to where you otherwise would be. And now I've got a blip on your cost, but I've got you back on that even keel and now I get the benefit of your longevity, which is where we get to next. Uh, And I want to try to keep track of time and I apologize that I talk too much. (laughs) Sort of, (laughs) sort of. (laughs) Eight minutes. I will try to speed through some of this. So two passes sustainability. Make money or save money and prove that you're worth the cost. And so this is an actuarial curve and that's what I want to talk about here. (laughs) So we talk about the types of data and the ability to prove shared savings, to prove value. There are ways of doing it. But you have to be able to understand the language that folks are looking at. So an insurance calculation is gory and simple. It boils down to this. How much money do you kick into the system before you die? Okay. So if you are very expensive and you die young, that's a loss. right? Because I've, I've paid out more than I've made on you. If you are not healthy, if you are not sick and you live a long time, that's a win. Right? Most people are somewhere in. You know they're on a continuum right and so the objective of insurance and where your economics orient around the idea of being paid <laughs> to reduce the risk is can i move you from a situation where you would be very expensive and i don't know how long you live but if you're a you know, you're a chain smoker and you're drinking a lot and etc then i get you into care or now you're starting to call 911 because you really don't feel good and all these things are going badly You start to become very expensive, but you also might live a short amount of time. That's a negative. There is a, it might sound perverse, because it is, but it's also good for you if you can say, hey, insurance company, I will help this patient live longer. I will help them cost less. You just pay me to do the work. (laughs) And I'm giving you that, I'm giving you the economics in a way that makes sense to the insurance payer, (laughs) for example, in that case, because they want you to be a customer, like McDonald's wants you to be a customer, as long as humanly possible. They just don't want to have to pay a lot for your care along the way. So if you start to move them down the cost curve by getting them off the sauce, getting them off whatever is causing them harm, helping them not fall over and over and over again, there is an incentive for them. to part two, to support initiatives to do that, it gives them a win simultaneously. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that I skip to these, because these are really important, I think, to this point. As I mentioned earlier, you have most of the data that you need to do this. The question is, can you align them? So I'm not going to ask Brooke, because she knows all the acronyms. <laughs> um, but our, so I'll go just real quick. NEMSIS, National EMS Information System. ENFIRS, National Fire Incident Reporting System. CJIS, Criminal Justice Information System. Uh, HMIS, Homeless Management Information System, SAMHSA, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, HL7. Does anybody know what that stands for? Oh, come on, if anybody got it, that would be amazing. HL- it stands for Health Level 7. There is no Health Level 6, there's no Health Level 8. Why it's called Health Level 7, I have no idea. <laughs> okay, so this is the way that, we, that, that translate the tech to reality, right? But the, in order to... In order to maximize the utility of what you're doing, it's not about looking at these this way. I want to encourage you as a takeaway from today to look at them this way, and that way. Because that's actually what you do. Doesn't matter if you call it a co-responder program or not, this is your reality. Right? You can do this whether you're, whether you're rolling hot, or you're rolling code two, or you're showing up as a co-responder program. You are going to deal with this. The question is, are you able to share the information and make sure that you are addressing things that people care about, right? And that will then get you compensated, not reimbursed. Please never, ever use the word reimbursement again, unless you want me to pay you back for something, ever. Reimbursement means something. It has been bastardized in the healthcare context. It does not make any sense. If you want to be reimbursed for the saline, I will spend $6 and get you more saline. If you would like gas money back, I will give you that too. If you want to be compensated for your work, ask for payment for money, for compensation, for work that you've done, and then prove that you did a good job, it's really, really hard in the social determinants area because the Gravity Project, as I mentioned, which is an HL7-directed program, it's federally funded, um, brought together more than 2,000 participants, all of whom had their own way of measuring social determinants of health. Oh, shit. I mean, if you've got 2,000 ways of measuring something, you're basically not measuring them. So my argument would be, What makes a a co-responder program successful is that you've met those goals. The question is, what are those goals? And so, with that, I'm gonna skip over my little video. Have any of you guys seen A Beautiful Mind? Okay, I recommend that you watch this scene where it's the way that if everybody goes for the blonde, nobody wins, but everybody goes for her friends, they all go home with somebody. That's the scene, I highly recommend it, right? Instead of all going after the same pot, everybody finds a way to help each other out so that the hole rises and everybody does better. So with that, I wanna spend four minutes, if I may, talking about a couple different programs because there are examples of where this is working very, very well uh, and very poorly. So this is an example of one that may or may not be near where I live. I will not tell you where it is, it's not that far. Um, Imagine a situation where your answer to a community co-responder program is that uh, in response to a mentally ill person getting shot in the head and killed um, where some people in that public health and safety ecosystem knew that this person was mentally ill and he had been living in the park and ride for a very long time. Uh, he was not going to cause harm to anybody and the person who ended up shooting him had also been involved in another officer involved shooting prior to that. So the uh, on another very similar situation it was extremely sad. Uh, p- the answer that the community came up with was that if there is not assumed to be violence, then the police would stage and fire would take over the call. Who loses in that situation? Police. In fact, the police chief was pissed. Basically said that guarantees that every encounter we have is gonna end violence, right? Because anybody who's, we're being told to wait unless violence is implied in this encounter. That means our guys are gonna be exposed more often Our people are going to be under the gun. I mean, sorry, bad analogy. But like, they're going to be videotaped more often. There is a spectacle here. The odds of a lawsuit are higher. And the fire department is going to take care of all the happy, calm calls. That did not work. And it hasn't worked. It hasn't hasn't gone anywhere. Badly designed program. As opposed to, this is the one from Alameda that I mentioned. Um, And... It has worked so well, and people are so happy with it, that it got trend. It's now uh, a municipal line item. It brought together the Alameda Fire Department, the Alameda Police Department, and Alameda Family Services, recognizing that there was a group of individuals. They're not being called patients, they're being called clients. It took me a while to wrap my mind around the idea that we're not calling them patients, um, but they fall into a crack. Because on any given day, you're not really sure what you're going to get with these patients, <laughs> clients, excuse me. <laughs> so, yeah, I did it again. <laughs> Right. If if an individual is sleeping on a park bench, is that person in the midst of a healthcare issue? Are they? Do they do they need housing? If you wake them up, how are they going to react? We didn't know. So the program was intended to create a model by which the responders in the field, both PD and FD were empowered to make a decision based on the conversation they're having with this individual what do they need next and every individual client was automatically referred to family services so they could get follow-up care and the cases have been dramatic so I won't read through all of this um, I'm happy to send these out if you'd like but there are two specific case studies that I wanted to, to bring here that we could talk about is patient W and patient R one of whom was violent, the other of whom was not, both of whom are doing fantastically. And as everybody has said, it came down to the relationships involved that were fostered. But there needed to be the ability to communicate with that individual while also recognizing that sometimes this person may be having a rough day. And they may have a weapon on them. Or they may be having a medical issue. And they needed a mechanism to communicate among those organizations and share the data which is kind of where i came in to help them tell the story of what consolidating these different data streams allowed them to do the last one to talk about here uh, is also in california uh, it is funded through a a, a mechanism called project home Key. and i think this is a remarkable example of when organizations can find a mutual win so this was uh during covid uh the community of uh, sonoma county had like a lot of other places had hotels and motels that were not being used, right? for one reason or another. So the owners often wanted out, where they didn't have the money to do the projects that they needed to do. Basically, the the properties were going to fall into disrepair, and there wasn't any buyer for them anymore. We know that vacant properties do bad things for crime. Um, So, And there were patients patients at that point in the community who were living homeless, uh, who were experiencing infectious disease, all the stuff before COVID and COVID, Uh, And in many cases, they had children with them as well, living on the streets. So it became a wonderful win-win to say, we're going to uh, essentially the county was going to come forward, acquire those properties. That gave the owners a win. The uh, fire and police uh, and EMS all experienced their win. And the patients got housed. But they went one step further. And this is what was really important. The, The fact that this was funded through the Department of Housing and Community Development, it's kind of the magic key to this. Because the, the benefit wasn't to any one organization, right? Fire had its benefit. Uh, in this case, they were, rolling, they were the ones rolling hot to these patients. Uh, PD avo- had a lot of things that they got to avoid. Public health had its benefit. But what the program ended up doing was setting up an on site infirmary. And that was really innovative. They took over what had been the kitchen of this, um, I think it was the kitchen or the laundry room, one of the two. of of this hotel, and they converted it to an infirmary. They brought in members of the local FD on their off days to staff the infirmary. So the relationships between fire and these patients were continuous, right? These are the folks who used to be running on them hot, and now they were in a controlled environment taking care of them as paramedics, right? There was was firefighter paramedics that were there doing that. At the same time, the uh, community now has a productive center where people are living and getting, uh, basically getting their lives together so that they can go out and get jobs. And some of those folks are working there on site, taking care of the community, you know, the, the hotel and whatnot. Others are enjoying the safety of a place that they can live and get their lives back together, make sure their kids are safe and so on and so forth. Uh, and I, I mentioned earlier, I'm sorry, I know I'm a little over this, will be all, two slides, three slides. I promised my last name. Okay that the cost to do this type of work can be extremely low. And that was really where I wanted to end on this because I don't want to suggest that these have to be very cost-intensive things to do. There are gobs of money and resources out there for this. I'm going to show you those on the next slide. But this is an example of a social determinant, which is a lack of access to education, that tends to have long-term reverberating effects in communities, we know that. In Boston, which is where I went to school, There are two major universities that have education programs at the school. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, whether it's an education social determinant, a housing social determinant, a food social determinant, for example, if you have a cooking school in your community, a hospitality school, if you harness those students, send them into the community, let them cook for the community, let them teach the community, they need that experience anyway. And you are getting an expansion of your workforce beyond what you necessarily have on site with you. You don't have to bring them in as members of the team per se, but they get to be force multipliers to you. That is a true, again, co-response approach from a communal perspective <laughs> where everybody wins. If you take this approach and you bring these organizations together, this is a program I was involved in in Connecticut, look at how many partners were involved in this, specifically focused on opioid intervention, but it involved everyone from PD, fire, EMS, hospital, etc., down to parks and recreation. Why parking recreation? Where were people sleeping? <laughs> right? So to the degree that all these different groups came together, and the federal government now in particular is directly monetizing and incentivizing that type of collaboration by offering not only the overdose to Action Program, which is the one I, that was the previous slide was funded through, but, for example, there are initiatives right now that organizations in this room could apply for that have a 300% incentive simply for having meetings like this. To bring people together to say no individual fire police public health housing etc service can do this on their own but people are busy if you need money to be able to backfill people because their work still needs to get done but you want to send your local leader to a meeting you need to hire somebody to be able to help so that you can send them out to do this work and so our tax dollars are actually being invested through that massive transportation bill 800 billion billion dollar transportation bill to specifically fund programs that are designed for collaboration, you can go on your own because not every community, rural communities, etc., won't necessarily have all of the resources in their community to do collaboration out of the box. But if you do have them, there are real economic incentives to say come together and work as a group, and and that is the way the programs are designed. That is all. Thank you all. I'm here to all day. So thank you. Thank you.